Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think that they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is a listener suggestion from John. John suggests the et expecto bridge of the Mass in B minor, and that is the passage of music that comes between the confiteor and et expecto in the Mass in B minor. This is such a moment of Bach that we are making it a two-part episode. And as a bit of a foretaste, here is the moment that we will explore throughout these two episodes and set up in this first episode. John says, I love the odd harmonies of this passage which lead into the exuberance of D major. I had a great piece of compositional advice given to me by a teacher once. Always know where you're going. And Bach knew where he was going with this, and that was to the exuberance of D major, as John put it so nicely there. And where he was going text-wise was to the resurrection of the dead on the last day. This calls for nothing less than festive trumpets and timpani and full orchestra and our five-part choir, which Bach uses through most of this Mass in B minor. We return here to this masterwork, the Mass in B minor, because it's that good. And because this is a great suggestion from our listener, John, and it's because of what happens before the happy festive stuff that we're hearing right now. But let's have a little context, shall we? Always good to have some context. Always know where you're going, right? This is the end of the credo section of the Mass in B minor. And if you're picturing yourself in a concert situation here, this is a long concert you've chosen to go to. It's at least two hours. And the intermission probably took place after the first part of the Mass, which included the Curie and Gloria sections. And now you've just heard the ninth and final movement of the credo section, which is the creed, which goes through the Latin translation of the creed. And there's still more to come after this particular movement is over, but it still ends with a wonderfully conclusive finish. Although Bach smartly doesn't end it on a long note, because that might feel a little bit too final, maybe like the whole mass was over. So he ends it on a short and sweet little stinger, which is done masterfully here by the Netherlands Bach Society. I await the life of the world to come. Amen. Boom. The amen is just so direct and forceful. You don't see a lot of performances really go after the shortness of that note. Yeah. I think I've heard several performances that just held that note long. Right. But it it works so well short. And just in the context of the whole thing, we're coming right into another big festive movement, the Sanctus, which is slow, but festive. And so it's perfect contrast to end this fast festive movement on a quick note like that. That Sanctus also has a more extravagant six-part split in the choirs. Although, Alex, do you remember the tempo taken by the Netherlands Bach Society for the Sanctus? I remember that they do it faster than what I am used to. 
is very fast. I mean, it's very fast in, in comparison to what we usually hear. It really yeah. does work fast. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Actually, I like it better fast. But it also works really well slow, though. You know that movement. Yeah, but that's a thing. That's a thing in Bach, though. It's like a lot of Bach works at almost any tempo as long as it's reasonable, because like the notes just speak for themselves. You know, like the work. Bach put in the work, you know? I don't know about you, but I've always had those moments in pieces where I'm preparing piece where I go like, this only works at 120 beats per minute or whatever. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that's not, I, I think that composition sometimes has limitations and that's fine, but sometimes you just have to sort of fix a piece to make it work really well. And you don't ever have to do that with Bach. It already works. And more artsy composers of later generations that were writing music for personal fulfillment or some grand modernist view of the creator ego being fulfilled mm. these composers often got their own tempo markings wrong i, I mean in the, in the sense that many pieces the tempo marking is too fast and maybe this is because the composer kind of hears it in their own head a little bit too effortlessly and then when someone else actually has to hear it or interpret it in real time it needs to be received slower by the listener or performer and that does happen mm. in in music a lot, but it doesn't... I mean, the tempo markings were a lot more vague in Bach's time, but it's still... Bach's music is more flexible, and I think it's because he was necessarily a performer at just as much as he was a composer, and he was just practically doing everything. So he couldn't afford to just think something out. He was also playing. That's a good point. And also, they didn't have accurate tempo markings back then at all because the the metronomes that were invented in the romantic era those were a lot more accurate to the tempo marking yeah that's right the metronome hadn't been invented yet and now now of course we have super accurate digital metronomes but even the ones i want to say beethoven had a metronome is that right i think so i think that was an early early metronome yeah and so these are mechanical devices of course and that allowed composers to be along with the times right that that's late classical early romantic there to like be more picky with everything about their composition, including the exact beats per minute. So the eighth and ninth movement of the credo section, specifically the transition between eight and nine. So eight is confiteor, which is confess or believe. I believe in one baptism, I confess one baptism. So this movement is not specifically about confessing sins, which it might seem at first glance for that word, but it's more similar to the first movement of the Credo, which is like, I believe in this thing, right? This is what the whole creed is about. And that was about, I believe in God Almighty, but this is about, I believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. So Bach starts us as he likes to do with a imitative section, all five voices coming in at different times on a subject that he's created to create a fugue here. But it starts actually with a bass line before anything happens. And this is pretty typical for for this kind of scoring that he did for the Mass in B minor. And so it's an accompanied fugue, we should say, in that it's not like his stuff from the Well-Tempered Clavier where every note is just part of a, that enters is just part of a new voice. But it's a thing, it's a Baroque composition that has a full-on bass line, which we hear two notes of before any fugue subject enters, and continuo as well, 
organ playing. So it's a five-voice fugue accompanied with a sixth part, which is the bass part. And I think we should point out, Alex, just to keep in the back of our heads that the movement is starting in F-sharp minor. That's the key word. Yeah, yeah. Remember where we're going, right? Yeah, we have to talk about keys when we talk about this this moment. Yeah, I'm excited to get there because I want to get a little more in-depth with tonality than what we normally do on this podcast. So that means, listeners, if you are musicians, you should get out your score. I'll link to it in the description. And a vocal score will do just fine. We don't need to see everything because it's all pretty much there in the vocal score or if you have a reduction. But that being said, if you don't really know what we're talking about, I think you'll still be able to at least get some side knowledge of the conversation out of what we're talking about. But anyway, we jump in to this fugal thing. And like you said, Christian, this is a Baroque thing, this accompanied fugue. But with text-based stuff, Bach is at the mercy of the text and he lets that drive even the form of something. We always talk about how Bach sets text and like when he gets to a dramatic word, he does something dramatic in the music. That's a little more obvious. But here, it's that the text itself, which is the creed, which is one of the most dry things you could ever set to music, is actually giving him something cool to work with here. And Schweitzer makes this point about the creed and how uh, and how Bach masterfully makes it into something beautiful, even though like just speaking the creed is very non-musical. And the creed, when it was codified and like formalized in Nicaea back in the 4th century, I want to say, 4th century AD, they weren't thinking like, and this is going to be a song. Of course they weren't, right? That wasn't what it was for. It was a theological statement of shared faith. But anyway, here, instead of setting up a normal fugue like he would in one of his instrumental pieces, he has to now go to another piece of text, so he's going to make another fugue out of this shortly. So he only stays on the confiteor thing, at least at first, for like a few seconds. And then, I mean, it's, what, 16 bars, but these measures go by so fast. And then suddenly we get to the next part of text, which is, in remissionem peccatorum, which means for the forgiveness of sins. So baptism being for the forgiveness of sins, part of the creed, right? And when he gets there, I love what he does there, because let's compare. Here's confiteor, here's I confess one baptism, and listen to the entrances of the choir parts and the notes that he uses when they come in. typical fugal stuff. Start in a key, the next entrance is in the dominant key, the next entrance is back in the tonic, and just goes back and forth between the two. So there's only two pitches that that anyone's going to start on, right Alex? There's the first entrance that starts on C sharp, whenever that happens, the next note just one scale degree step up, the next entrance starts on F sharp, whenever that entrance occurs, the second note is a two steps up, and then that pattern continues until all the five parts have already entered. Yes, and it's important to note that they're not exactly as the same sequence. Like, he changes it, right? One is... Which is a step, specifically a half step. But the other one is actually not even a step at all. It's a leap. And the last note is different. But that just serves to work with the structure that he's doing. And that's that, that's considered pretty normal in fugal structure like this. It's just not a real answer. It's just a tonal answer. Yeah, that's, that's a really old counterpoint trope that just goes back hundreds of years right and he's going to access ancient stuff in a second and we'll talk about that when he gets to the chant part so then let's compare right that's what you just heard and those 
are the only two keys he uses. But then, in the in remissionem part, once he does that, listen to the listen to the entrances of the choir parts. They are all different. Mm. And not only are they all different, but they're all a fifth apart. This is really weird and remarkable, and I love it. And it serves to separate these two sections really well. It is a sequential pattern. And whenever, and he's talking about sin. He's talking about sin here. So I think he is trying to be a little more harmonically uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> so then he gets back to the Confiteor stuff and he mixes them now. And then we have our first mixture right here with the soprano ones singing this. Confiteor and the soprano twos singing this. So you get this together. Wonderful little dissonance that gets resolved. Which also reveals that Bach had to think one step ahead to make sure that they both worked together before he finished finalizing what these just little subjects were going to be. Yeah, he always knew where he was going. That's not enough for Bach, right? That would be too simple, <laughs> even that complexity. We know this by now, right, listeners? Bach is going to continue to do something different and surprise us, and here we go. He's gonna add in a plain chant melody to all this complicated texture. That's It's a different melody completely, and he's going to weave it in kind of as if he always knew he was going to, which I'm, I'm sure he constructed everything else around this too. It's like in our Ich Eleder Mensch episode where Christian, you mentioned that the chorale tune was almost this background thing played in instruments, but clearly Bach wrote everything around it. You used the treehouse metaphor. So this plain chant is the tree that everything was built around. And that begins in the bass. And is quickly echoed by the alto after. continues for a while just continuing this melody from an old plain chant a melody Bach did not write I love that it's in fifths the bass down there and then the alto above a fifth higher and they're offset so that it works if they were together it wouldn't be legal because they'd be in parallel fifths yeah but I wonder if he's subtly hinting at that almost ancient chant harmony that's what that sounds like because those parallel fifths that we're hearing that Bach would never do, it does just really sound like ancient plain chant, what we would call organum. It's sort of like the very first harmony ever. It's the how they originally harmonized the chant by adding a second and later third voice to a single melody, you know, over a thousand years ago, long before Bach. Yeah. And then we come to what I think is my favorite part of the meat of this movement. Although I agree with our listener, John, that the stuff that's coming in the transition is 
the most interesting. But anyway, here, this tenor part, the tenors suddenly sing this plain chant and they get to do it twice as slow, which I think is pretty cool that Bach has figured out that even twice as slow, this totally still works with both other subjects of the fugues that he's already set up. And if you listen to the tenor part, you'll hear the long notes. And I'm going to play it twice. First time, listen for those long notes in the tenor. And I'll play along. And it continues. Now let's hear that again, but this time, try and pay attention to all the other voice parts and listen for the... All the confiteor stuff and the in remissionem stuff also that populate the rest of the musical texture. that is where we have to leave it for this week next week on part two we dive in to some of the really crunchy material to the moment suggested by listener john and now as a little foretaste of what to expect for next week here is part of that transitional moment between those two movements the et expecto bridge If this introduction to the Confiteor and Et Expecto section of the Mass in B minor has inspired you to hear the rest of that section and the rest of the Mass in B minor, please check out the links that we will provide in the episode description for you. We recommend you do that in the next week because then next week we'll have part two of this episode where we get into more nitty gritty of the harmony of this magical section. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 